really is a pleasure to be here. Um, we, your brothers and sisters over at Tabernacle, um, just wanted you to know we pray for you regularly and excited about the things that the Lord is doing here through Holy Cross, and it really is an honor to be here uh, this morning. One of life's big questions is, who am I? This is a question all of us have to answer from time to time. And really, the heart of that question is, do I matter? What is my purpose? And we struggle with this. Am I making a difference in the world? Am I doing what I am supposed to be doing? Does anyone know me? Does anyone care about me? Now, the world offers all sorts of answers to that question, but I think it's important for us to look and see what the Creator, our Creator, how He answers those questions. And so to do this, we are going to be looking together at Psalm 8. So I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 8. And as we study this psalm together, let us wrestle with this question together. Do I matter? So please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of the Lord, and it was given to us in love, and it is absolutely true. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name! In all the earth. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word this morning. Uh, We thank you for these encouraging words from David that remind us of who you are, that you are our creator, and that you are full of glory and majesty and splendor. We also thank you for the reminder of who we are, and I pray, O Lord, as we study this psalm together, that you would teach us more about yourself, but that you would also teach us about who we are, of how you created us and why you created us. But most importantly, Lord, we pray that as we work through this psalm together, that we would see more and more of the glory of Christ, and that he would be exalted. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So David's theme in the psalm is the, it's, it's first and foremost, it's the greatness of God. But the other theme in the psalm, though, is what is man's place? What is our place in God's created universe? And so the psalm seeks to answer two foundational questions. Who is God? And we'll see that in verses 1 through 3. And the second question is, who is man? And we'll see that in verses 4 through 8. Now these are questions that every religion, every philosophy, every worldview has to answer in some way or another. And really the most common answers that you receive to these questions, at least in the world around us, is something like this. The question, who is God? The most common answer would be that there is no God. Or that if there is God, it's not a personal God, it's just some force that's out there. 
And the most common answer you'd hear to the question, who is man, is that man is a morally good creature, and it is our responsibility to make the world a better place. And if we do that well enough, if we are good enough, then we can live on for eternity. Now, within the, the church, the universal church, the most common answer you'd probably find to the question, who is God, would be something along the lines of that God exists, but that he's a distant and disinterested God who doesn't really interfere with our everyday lives. Now, he does interfere on extreme occasion, occasions and in, under extreme circumstances. And who is man, which I just realized I got that backwards, sorry. The, the world's view of man typically is that we are just another link in the evolutionary chain. Where within the universal church, the common answer is that we are morally good and it is our responsibility to make the world a better place. But my question is, if, if, if you hold to one of those views, you know, what real hope does that actually provide for you? Really not much. But there is a better reality. So let us look at how David answers these two foundational questions in this psalm. So the first question, who is God? Well, David provides us with three testimonies that help us answer that question. There's a testimony he gives us about God in verse 1. There's a testimony from the humble in verse 2. And then there's a testimony from the heavens in verse 3. So what has God revealed about himself? Well, look again at verse 1, which says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Well, the first thing we need to notice here is that, that David starts his psalm with the word, O Lord. And, and whenever you see in, in the Bible that word, Lord, is all caps, that is referring to God's name, Yahweh. This is the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. And, and it simply means, I am that I am. And in most cases, it's just summarized as I am. That is what God's name means, is I am. So what are the implications of his name? What does his name teach us about God? Well, first, it shows us that he is eternal. God never had a beginning. God will never have an end. Matter of fact, God is actually the creator of time. He has created and he controls time. His name also teaches us that God is the creator. That everything exists because God created it. That everything owes its dependence and existence upon God. Therefore, everything is absolutely dependent upon him. God brought all things into being and he upholds all things. His name also teaches us that God is the absolute reality. That there is no reality apart from God. It teaches us that God is independent. That God depends on nothing. He depends on nobody. To support Him. To counsel Him. To make Him who He is. God is infinite. And that's important to understand. Because when we think about the, that, the fact that God is infinite. One of the implications of that is that everything. Everything else in the created world is nothing compared to God. His name also teaches us that God is constant. That God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That He will be the same forever. That God will never decrease. He will never diminish. But He can also never be improved upon. God does whatever He pleases. And whatever God does is good and right and pleasing. So his name, the name Yahweh, tells us that God is the most important and valuable reality in the entire universe. That everything else pales in comparison to him. 
God is the great I am. So that's the first thing that we see, is Yahweh. He is the great I am. And then he goes on and calls Yahweh Lord. And that reminds us that God is the one with authority. That all authority belongs to him. God is the supreme ruler. Which means that God has the final say on all matters. It also means that he has the right to expect obedience from us. Because all authority belongs to him. And then David goes on and he uses these two great terms to describe God. And we see this again in verse 1. He says, How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So these two terms, majesty and glory, these these terms are related to each other. The, The term glory deals with God's essence or his being. The word itself is related to to weightiness or worthiness. And so whenever we talk about the glory of God, what we are saying is that God is more weighty than anything and anybody else. Or that he has more glory, more worth than anything else. That God is full of honor and splendor and beauty. And when we talk about his majesty, majesty really is, is the display of his glory within the created universe. And it is especially connected to his sovereignty and his power and his authority. Now there's a great picture of of this in in Isaiah 6, which we read earlier in the service. In that passage, we read things like that God is high and lifted up. That his robe fills the entire temple. That the whole earth is full of his glory. And at the very foundation, shake when he speaks. It's just this beautiful picture of the glory and the holiness and the majesty of God. He is the great I am and he is glorious. And his glory, if you look at the psalm, it extends above the heavens. And his majesty is on display in all the earth. These are the two great realms of creation, heaven and earth. And the implication of that is that there is nowhere where we can hide from the glory of God. There is nowhere that is not filled with his majesty. Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous pastor a century ago in London, this is what he says. He says, universally, God is present, and everywhere is his name excellent. God worketh ever and everywhere. There is no place where God is not. The miracles of his power await us on all sides. And to to bring this point home, David says, God's glory is above the heavens. In other words, his glory is infinite. It is incomprehensible. It cannot be contained. All of creation, everything that we see, cannot exhaust the glory of God. 1 Kings 8 makes this clear. It says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. So so what has God revealed about himself here in verse 1? That he is the great I am. God is Lord. That he is glorious. And that his majesty is on display for everyone to see. We cannot miss it. So does this mean that everyone will accept God's glory? That everyone will embrace his majesty? Well, look at what it says in verse 2. It says, out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. In other words, God has enemies. And these enemies, they challenge his glory. They deny his lordship. They try to to hide his majesty. 
And the chief enemy is Satan, who here is referred to as the avenger. Satan and his followers, they're going to challenge God's glory. And so what is God's answer to this challenge? Look what it says. He will answer their challenge through the mouth of babies and infants. What do we know about babies and infants? Well, they are weak and needy. They're completely dependent upon others for their food and their protection and their provision. You know, their mouths are, are, are typically just sources of, of babbling. And they like to cry out for things they need, whether it's a diaper change or food or whatever, or sleep. My wife and I, we have one son. He's about to turn two. And just a case in point, if you wanted to carry on a meaningful conversation with him, you're limited to two subjects. You're going to either talk about balls, because he loves playing with balls, or you're going to have to talk about family members, because he loves to list off all our family members. If you want to have any conversation beyond that, he's not going to be able to communicate well with, with you. As a matter of fact, and it's actually, I think, a, a reflective of this psalm, that one of the things, which is really cute, but it's also... Like I said, it's a, a picture of the psalm. Is whenever we sit down at, for dinner, we, we do our time of prayer as a family. And we'll pray for various family members and friends. And Drew is quick to point out if you forget somebody. <clears throat> so, you know, if I'm praying, I'm listening off different people and asking for God to bless them in various ways. If, if I miss someone, he'll say, Mimi, Mimi, you need to pray for Mimi. And in a sense, that's exactly what David's talking about here. Because in a sense, this little child who doesn't communicate well yet, is actually putting me to shame. Because he's reminding me of things I should be praying for, of people I should be praying for. And so what David is doing here in this psalm, he's actually setting up this dramatic contrast between these infants and babies whose mouths can only speak so little versus these powerful opponents of God, including Satan himself. There's this contrast. And the amazing thing is that God is saying that it will be through this weakness, through the mouth of, mouths of these babies and infants, that he will display his strength over his enemies. Why does God do that? It is because he alone is going to get the glory. God alone gets the credit. He is the one who is victorious. God is bringing his enemies to an end through weakness. But there's also something more important and even deeper going on here. You see, this psalm is a foreshadow of the cross. In Matthew 21, we read this. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So this, this is the scene where Jesus is entering Jerusalem during his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. And if you remember, as he's coming in, there are people gathered all around him, praising his name, including many children. And the religious leaders, leaders get upset by this. And, and they accuse Jesus of allowing, in essence, these children to say blasphemy, to say things about Jesus that they don't believe are true. And so how does Jesus respond to them? He quotes to them this psalm. He quotes to them Psalm 8. In essence, what Jesus is telling them is that these children are actually right. Their testimony about me is right. And you religious leaders who have the Old Testament, who should know better, you are wrong. You don't know me. 
And so in essence, these children are shaming the religious leaders. The weak are shaming the wise. So what can we learn from this? Why does this matter today? Well, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might be in the presence, or boast, might boast in the presence of God. So Paul is reminding us that God uses the foolish things and the weak things of this world for his great purposes. So that the strength of the gospel, the effectiveness of the gospel, is not based upon us. It is not based upon our wisdom or our strength. It is based upon God. And that is so important to understand because that gives us such great encouragement. So, for example, that gives us the freedom to evangelize. Because how, how often do people at least say that they're not willing to evangelize because either they are afraid, they're afraid of, of rejection, or they're afraid that they just don't know the gospel well enough to share it effectively enough. Well, if that is you, then you're qualified. That is good news. God uses the weak and the lowly to shame the wise. It also gives us the freedom to, to deal with resistance, to deal with persecution. Because we're reminded once again that God is going to use the weak things of this world to shame the wise, to still the enemy. And it gives us the freedom to share our weaknesses, to be open, to be vulnerable, to share our weaknesses first and foremost with God, but also with one another. We don't need to hide from these things. This passage gives us great hope. It should be an encouragement to us that God uses the weak things, that he uses the powerless to accomplish great and grand and glorious purposes for his name. Jared Wilson wrote this. He says, God builds strong defenses out of human vulnerability and weakness rather than their praise. The recognition of one's own weakness is the starting point for recognizing dependence upon the strength of God. So we see here in verse 2 that God will shame the wise. And I think it's so crucial for us to remember that because there are times, if we're honest, and we look around our world, we think that God is weak. Or that he doesn't care. Or that God really is just can't do anything. And if we look at the church, we sometimes look at the church and say, the church is just feeble. What hope do we have? Well, we need to remember that in the end, God's going to use that very weakness. He's going to use the weakness of the church, the weakness of sinners, to accomplish glorious purposes and to defeat his enemies. And God alone in the process will get the glory. His glory and his greatness is displayed through the humble. And now David then turns his attention to the heavens. And we see this in verse 3. He says, I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. Now most likely David was writing this psalm when he, when he was out in the fields tending the sheep and he was out in the fields at night. And he was looking upon the vast sky and just the beauty of the stars above him. And as, he, and as he looked upon the, just that glorious sight and the, and the beauty of what was above him, he could not help but think about the one who created those very stars. He could not help but think about the one who put those stars in their place. And that's important because we're reminded that all of creation declare the glory of God. This is one of the great themes of the psalm. Psalm 19 says, The heaven declares the glory of God. 
and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Now, have you ever taken time to just stop and, and to just be in awe of the creation around you, of creation around you, of the world that you live in? You know, for me, one of the, the, the things that's as powerful for me is, is to go up into the mountains and to hike, whether it be off the Blue Ridge Parkway or, or somewhere else in the mountains. The mountains for me are just a special place where I just experience the glory of God in a unique way. Now, for my wife, it's different for her. My wife, it's the beach. She goes to the beach, and, and whenever she goes to the beach, it's just there's something special about the beach where she just experiences the glory of God in a unique way. As a matter of fact, when we were getting ready to get married and, and I sat down with Jenny's dad um, to ask his permission to marry his daughter, throughout the conversation, we had a long conversation, but at one point he said, if you marry my daughter, you need to promise me right here and now that you will take Jenny to the beach once a year, every year for the rest of your life. And I was like, ah, I guess I'll do that. That's a challenge. But no, it's, it's a special place for her and he knew that. Now, hopefully all of you have places like that. All of you, I hope all of you at, at some point in time have just been at awe of the created order, of the beauty and the glory that's all around us. It might be a magnificent sight like the Grand Canyon or snorkeling at the coral reefs. You see, the beauty around us, it can take our breath away. It, it can lead us to worship because the beauty around us, it puts on magnificent display the glory and the majesty and the power and the grace of God. And how did God create all of this? Well, look at what David says. Let's not miss this. He says he created it with his finger. Everything around us, everything that we see was created with God's finger. That just magnifies his glory and his beauty. You see, the, the, the glory of creation, as powerful as it is, as beautiful as it, that it is, is only a speck when compared to God himself, when compared to the creator. And so David, as he's pondering all this, as he's looking upon the vast sky and he's starting to think about the one who created all things, it leads him to ask another question. And we see this in verse 4. What is man? that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. Because when we consider all that God has created, as David was doing here in verse 3, man starts to look rather small. And that's why David asks this question in verse 4. There's a, a, a scene at the end of the movie Men in Black. It's a great scene. I know Men in Black came out a long time ago, but if you've seen it, the way the, the first Men in Black ends is it ends with Will Smith and his partner getting in the car. And as they start to drive off, the, the camera starts to pan away. And as it pans away, you see New York City, and New York City starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Then you see North America start to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Then you see Earth get smaller and smaller. And you start to see the other planets of the solar system go flying by. And then you see the Milky Way galaxy, and it starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And then you see these other galaxies go flying by. And all of a sudden, you come out to the scene, and it, and it all turns into a marble. And there's this alien playing with several marbles. Now, obviously, it's meant to be a humorous scene, but it actually does, it serves a powerful, it makes a powerful point. Which is, as you watch that scene, you start to feel, suddenly you feel really small. And I think that is what David is doing here. When we consider God and we consider everything that he has created, 
suddenly we feel very, very, very small. And to emphasize this even further, the word that David uses here for man is not the usual word that you find in in Scripture. The, The usual word for Hebrew um, is not the word that David uses here. He uses the word enos, which actually describes the weakness and the frailty of man. It stresses the, the distance between God and man. And yet, David still asks this question. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? The implication of that question is that God is mindful of you. That God does care for you. God is mindful of you. This means that He knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows your deepest longings. He knows your greatest struggles. He knows your darkest secrets. He knows your biggest needs. There is nothing that is hidden from Him. And not only is God mindful of you, but He cares for you. This means that He has affection and love for you. That he has concern for you. That he will provide for you. Now, now this is hard to believe. The God of the universe. The one who created all things. He is mindful of you. He cares for you. Now, if you're not convinced that that's true, David provides us with two pieces of evidence. He talks about the, the position that God has given man... And he talks about the purpose that God has given man. So what is the position that God has given us? Uh, We see this in verse 5. He says that you have made him, that you've made man, you've made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So in a sense, God has placed man squarely between heaven and earth. And the heavenly beings talked about here, these are the angels and and spirits that that serve God. They They are holy Um, glorious, sinless beings, and their sole purpose is is to worship and to serve God. And and man was made a little lower than them. So what does that mean? It means that we were created and placed here on earth as God's image bearers. We find this right off in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1. Um, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then he goes on and says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. This is something you hear from time to time in Scripture, that we are created as the Im- in the image of God. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be an image bearer, to be created in the image of God? Well, it doesn't have anything to do with our physical form. God is a spirit. He's not limited by a physical form. But what it does mean is it means that we have eternal souls, that our souls will live on for all eternity. It means that we are rational beings, that we are able to, to act and choose freely. And the reason why that's important, this is one of the characteristics that separates us from the rest of creation. It also means that we were created as relational beings. That we were created to be in relationship with God, but also relationship with one another. And not just in a relationship with God, but in a unique and special relationship with God that separates us from the rest of creation. So as God's image bearers, we act as a reminder of His presence and as an extension of his authority. So, so God placed us here on earth to represent him and to represent his authority. We reflect, glory, we reflect God's glory in a unique and special way that is different from all of creation. 
And then David goes on and he says that God has crowned us with glory and honor. Now these are characteristics of God. And yet God has crowned us with glory and honor. Now not to the same level as Him. But once again, this is another way that we are distinct from all of creation. That we've been crowned with glory and honor. So human beings, all human beings have a unique and special position in the created universe. And that's important for us to remember. That should affect the way we view other people. We are all created in the image of God. We all have a unique and special position in the created universe. And this leads us to the second piece of evidence, which is man's purpose. We see this in verses 6 through 8. David writes, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the sea. So we've been given dominion over all creation. What doesn't that mean? That doesn't mean that we can then abuse creation. That we can do whatever we want with the created world. It also doesn't mean that God needs us. That the reason why God has given us dominion is because he actually needs us to carry out the dominion over his created order. God doesn't need us. But in his infinite wisdom and grace and mercy, he has chosen us to be stewards over his creation. And that's the key, that we are stewards. And as stewards, that means that we represent God over his creation. That our authority is not our own. It was given to us. From God. But there's something else going on in this psalm as well. When it talks about that we were created a little lower than the heavenly beings. Now David could have said that we were created a little higher than earthly beings. In some sense that we were like some kind of Superman or Wonder Woman. But that is not what he says. He says that we were created a little lower than heavenly beings. And I think he's intentional. There's a reason for that. I think he wants us to be reminded that we were created, in essence, to have our gaze heavenly, to have our gaze upwards towards God, and created to be in relationship with God. And our main purpose, therefore, would then be um, that God was going to use man to reveal himself and to make himself known and to bring all creation under his authority. That is man's purpose. So when we look at this psalm so far, what do we see? We see that God is glorious and that his majesty is on display throughout all the earth and that all creation declares that that's true. We see that man was set apart from the rest of creation as God's image bearers and that we were given a a special and unique purpose which was to have dominion over all of creation. And so this brings me back to the very beginning. The question we started with is, is who are you? Do you matter? Well the answer is a glorious yes. You do matter. You have a purpose. But we struggle to believe that at times, don't we? Why is that? Why do we struggle to believe that? The answer is sin. Sin has corrupted our position. It has corrupted our purpose. You see, we are still made in the image of God, but sin has tainted that image. It has corrupted that image. We are still given this purpose to have dominion over all things. But because of sin, that dominion now is full of hardship and pain and struggles and failure. 
Paul talks about this in Romans 1. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So man was created a little lower than the heavenly beings. Adam and Eve, they were created with this perfect relationship with God, and, and it was in that relationship that they were perfectly fulfilled and happy. But then sin came and, and messed all that up. And when sin came, in essence, their gaze, which was heavenly, it was now turned towards the earth. And they started to worship created things rather than the creator. And the sad truth about that is as we worship created things, we become more and more like creation rather than becoming more and more like the creator. So what can be done about this? Well, the truth is there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we can do to change this. There's nothing that we can do to fix our sin problem. Because we are dead in sins and trespasses. We are all condemned and corrupted by sin. But what we can't do, God has done for us through Christ. Jesus is the greatest evidence. He is the greatest evidence that God is mindful of you. And that God cares for you. He sent Jesus to become a man. Jesus took on flesh. And he took our position... And he accomplished our purpose on our behalf. Hebrews 2 talks about this. We read this also early in the service. And in Hebrews 2, the writer of Hebrews in that passage is telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. That Psalm 8 points to him. Jesus is man perfected. The true glory of human nature is found only in Christ. He is the true image bearer of God because he is God. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. So Jesus, he is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. He is the true representative of God to all creation. And he came to do what we failed to do. He came to exercise dominion over all creation and to bring all things under subjection to him. How did Jesus do that? He did it through humility and humiliation. He humbled himself by becoming a man. He was humiliated when he went to the cross. And he died for sinners such as us. It wasn't until his resurrection that his victory was sure that he, he died on the cross and he rose victoriously from the grave. And Hebrews uh, 2.8 makes it clear that that victory, the victory of Jesus is true, but it is not yet fully realized. And I also think that's another reason why we sometimes struggle to believe this. We struggle to believe that Jesus actually won. We struggle to believe that Jesus is the victorious king who is ruling now. But rest assured, when Jesus returns, his work will be complete. 
His dominion and His authority will be known on all, on all of earth and all of heaven. When He returns, everything and everyone will be in subjection to Him. So Jesus fulfills Psalm 8 for us. So if you're here this morning, if, if you've confessed that you're a sinner, if you've confessed that you have failed to be the image bearer of God that you're called to be, to, to carry out dominion over creation as you're called to do, acknowledging that you have failed in those ways and that you have come to Jesus in faith, acknowledging that He accomplished what you failed to do and that He took your sins upon yourself, that is when we are changed. It is through the work of Jesus and, and through the power of the Holy Spirit that we are enabled to become what David talks about here in Psalm 8. It is, it is through Jesus that our gaze is turned away from earthly things and turned back to heaven. It is through Jesus that our relationship with God is restored. It is through Jesus that we are what we were created to be. There is a, a, stat, a famous statue in New York City that I think helps illustrate some of this. Um, it's the statue of Atlas. You probably have all seen this before. It's in front of Rockefeller Center. It's a statue where Atlas is standing like this and he's holding this big globe on his shoulders. Now, in many ways, this statue has become symbolic of how the, view, how the world views man. Because the world views man in this way, that it is man's responsibility, in, in, in a sense, to, to carry the world upon our shoulders. That we can do anything that we set our minds to. That we alone can make the world a better place. That we can make the world as we want it to be. That it is up to us. So much of our world views things that way. But the irony of that is that what the statue actually depicts is it actually depicts the punishment of Atlas. You see, he was punished to carry the weight of the skies upon his shoulders for all eternity. It was meant to be a great burden. A burden he had to bear for all eternity. And so, if you're here this morning and that is how you view life, that is how you view your world. If you view your world like it is entirely up to you, to control your life, to carry the world literally upon your shoulders. That is a burden that we cannot bear. It will crush us. But the interesting thing is in New York City, there's another statue. This statue is found in St. Patrick's Cathedral. And the interesting thing is this, that's the cathedral that's right in front of Atlas. And if you were to walk into that cathedral, eventually you'd find a, a little unassuming statue of a boy. And if you look a little closer at that statue, you realize that is a statue of Jesus as a boy. And if you look even a little closer, you realize that, that he's holding something in his hands. And if you look a little closer, you would realize that he is holding the world in his hands. That is real reality. That is the world we live in. We don't live in a world where we are supposed to carry the world on our shoulders. We live in a world where Jesus holds us in his hand. Jesus alone is the one who fully bears the image of God. He is the one who carries out dominion over all things. Psalm 8, it points us to Jesus. He is glorious. He is majestic. And the truly amazing thing is that through Jesus and Him alone, we are able to fulfill our purpose. We are able to be the people we were designed to be. So back to that original question. Do you matter? The answer is yes. You do matter. God is mindful of you. He cares for you. He created you in His image. 
He crowns you with honor and glory. He has given you a divine and glorious purpose. Now, yes, sin has messed all of that up. But Jesus was sent to fix that, to take our sins away, to take our sins upon himself, and to restore your relationship with God, and to restore your identity, and to restore your purpose. If you ever struggle believing that you matter, if you ever struggle believing that you have a purpose, look to the cross. Jesus loves you. He died to make you whole. He died so that your sins would be forgiven and that your relationship with God would be restored. And he invites all of us. He invites all of us who are weak and weary to come to him and we will find rest. So if you're here this morning and you view the world like your atlas, carrying that huge burden upon your shoulders, I encourage you to give that over to Jesus and to come to him Realizing that Jesus is the one that carries you as he carries the whole world in his hands. How do we respond to this gloriously good news? Really, the only response there is is one of worship and praise, and that is exactly what David does. If you look at the last verse, verse 9, David ends the psalm in the same way he began. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May that be the cry of our hearts as well. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for this good news. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he humbled himself by becoming a man and by dying as an atoning sacrifice upon the cross so that all who come in him, to him, would be saved, that our sins would be forgiven, that our relationship with you would be restored that our identity and our purpose would be restored. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning that does struggle believing whether or not they matter. I pray that they would look to Jesus and they would understand that they matter more than they even know and that God cares for them, that he is mindful of them. I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged this morning, but more importantly, Lord, I pray that Christ would be exalted that you would be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.